What a start for Brad Hughes. 180 metres to go. Looking good. Oh, what a shot. What a shot from Brad Hughes. Oh, my goodness. What a finish for Bradley Hughes. Easy number five, joining the lead. An amazing victory. For the second time, Brad Hughes wins the Australian Masters. This time by five strokes. Thanks for joining us again. My newest guest on the Bradley Hughes Golf Podcast is one of the most recognizable names in the sport for over 30 years. And he has never, ever hit a golf shot at any PGA Tour event. He has 14 major championship victories amongst his amazing resume. I've been fortunate to know Steve Williams for close to 40 years, a story you will hear more about throughout this interview. Now retired from caddying, but a name and an image that will always be associated with the history of golf. So let's go enjoy my podcast with Steve Williams. All right, well, welcome Steve Williams to the podcast. Uh, before we really begin into it all, I need to know how many tournaments you actually won caddying. <laughs> yeah, um, 150 exactly. I was trying to get over that 150 mark, but <laughs> stuck on 150 for probably the last two or three years. So I only caddy once a year now, New Zealand Open for Ryan Fox. So that's my one thing I'd love to do is caddy uh, for him and win the New Zealand Open. I haven't won the New Zealand Open, so and yeah, homegrown, homegrown player, bring it home. That'd be nice. Yeah, it would be. He's a good player, Foxy. I've seen you cat in for him. He's uh, got a lot of talent there. All right, so that's a lot of flags from the 18th green. Do you actually keep? Did you actually keep any of those? Like the caddies love to grab that flag off the 18th as a memento. Yeah, I was actually uh, fortunate. That I started doing that right from the get go, so uh, I actually have them all. So um, yeah, that's got them all displayed in a, in a like in, a, in an area in a room where they go sort of around and around the ceilings sort of thing. So it must be a big room. Um, <laughs> uh, this is a rather, rather large room, yeah. So now please please I actually started that right from the get-go. What about anything else that you kept? Anything like yardage books or just something silly that re remembers the tournament? No, only the flags, nothing nothing else. Like it actually in, in, in our house, except for that one room, there's not one but a golf memorabilia, nothing that would signify that you'd be involved in the game of golf. <laughs> like a little secret vault no one knows about until they get led there. Yeah, that's it. So let's head back to the start. Obviously, being a New Zealander, everyone, I think, or everyone that I know from New Zealand grew up wanting to be an all-black. So for those that don't know, that's uh, the New Zealand rugby team. Uh, was that your ideal? Obviously... You were a strapping lad when you were young, probably wanted to go and beat up a few guys on the rugby field. Yeah, I, I was absolutely the same as every other New Zealand kid growing up that you want to be an all black. It's just sort of something here, it's ingrained in you, if, if you like. You know, rugby is such a big part of our culture here, and nearly every school plays rugby, and some other schools, or some, a number of schools, don't actually have an option. You play rugby uh, or football, soccer, whichever like you call it, maybe you only two winter sports. Um, particularly when I was at school. So, yeah, I was no different. And I actually had a great ambition to be an All Black. Um, I played for the New Zealand Schoolboys uh, in 1976, actually versus Australia, your home country. Um, as a, We played as a trial, not a trial, as a curtain raiser, I should say, to the All Black Test. Uh, and the All Blacks played the 
British Lions, and I was very fortunate enough to get a pair of the British Lions socks um, in the changing rooms afterwards. So that was a big moment. So I had a, had I probably had the ability to play, uh, keep the rugby going. But um, yeah, that same year that I played in the curtain raiser for the New Zealand schoolboys team, I caddied for Peter Thompson at the New Zealand Open, and that's to have changed my direction immensely. There, <laughs> that was, went from wanting to be an All Black and and a race car driver, the two things I loved as a kid to be in a golf caddy, the caddy for Peter Thompson. That was the first time in 1976, and yeah, that, that, that's what changed my direction. Well, it's a pretty good start, Peter Thompson, five times open champ. How'd you, how'd you get that one? Yeah, well, my dad was a top amateur player here in New Zealand. He played um, at, at a high level, and we used to have a tournament at our course called the Celtics at Palapalima Beach, where I was a junior at, and they had a tournament called the Celtics. Peter played in that Celtics quite regularly. My dad played in it as an amateur. Um, and he just asked Peter one time, look, my son loves to caddy. I caddied at the golf course there at Parapa Beach and my son loves to caddy. Um, could he caddy for you one time when you came over? And, that, and he teed it up and that's how it worked. That's awesome, isn't it? I, um, not many people know this, but, you know, we go way back, probably 40 years or more now. So if you look up Wikipedia or things like that, there's no mention of you as a golfer, but I know you as a golfer. That's how I first met you. So without me giving all the details, let's hear your side of the story, how you were actually an assistant pro. Yeah, so when I, when I first started caddying, um, I, I, I caddied here and went to Australia and caddied in the tournaments in Australia um, and then was in a bit of a lull as to what to do from there. And I, I met a bloke, uh, um, he was a taxi driver, uh, it took me from the airport at Tullamarine, Melbourne Airport. Um, Are you talking city Jack? One day. Yeah, Jack, bloke with name Jack Wendell. He was a taxi driver and he said, look, come and work for me. Um, he was at Rossdale Golf Club and he said, come and work for me um, as an assistant. Um, and, and that's how it started. And that's, of course, where I met you. You, you were playing there as one well of the top junior players at that golf course. And yeah, so I did that not, not for long. Um, and, and did that over a winter period until the next summer came along when the tournament started up again and, and got back into the caddying side of things. And then, you know, from there, started to go overseas and caddy. But yeah, so it started with, you know, just from a taxi driver. Um, it, he took me uh, to the golf course and said, let's go and play a few holes. And, and as soon as we played a few holes, he said, oh, you, you, you should be a golf pro, man. You should sign up and be an assistant pro. Da, 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 da. And, yeah, it was great fun. I still have great fond memories of Rostow, as, of course, you, you played there. Your dad, Ken, was an avid golfer there and, a, and one of the characters of the golf club. And, yes, that place has fond memories, as I'm sure it does for you. Yeah, I always remember, you know, Obviously, I'd get home from school, go out and play. You'd be in the shop. Once you shut up shop, we'd go out and practice and play. I remember your brother Phil coming over a couple of times and we'd play with him also. So I don't think people know that you're actually a pretty good golfer. I, I, I'm, I elevate your status as a golfer to everyone that asks. Always tell them how, <laughs> I always tell them how good you were. But, yeah, I mean, that was... Uh, Anywhere as good as you were, buddy. I knew you were going places. <laughs> yeah, but it was, it was fun. I mean, I was only, I was probably 13, 14 at the time. You're probably 16 or 17 or 18, something like that. So, but it was great for me to have, you know, I didn't know much about golf at that point, who was good, who wasn't. You know, I obviously heard of a few players, but I used to hang out with you and watch you and practice. And I, I remember you hitting drivers out of a divot. 
on the practice range. And I thought that's pretty impressive being able to compress it out of a diver. This guy's pretty strong. So, and I always tell everyone, um, you know, you may not remember this, but I used to actually go caddy for you sometimes on the, the Monday assistant project. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I always, I besides telling everyone that you're a good player, I always tell everyone that I basically taught you how to caddy as well. Cause I used to give you all the, all the inside info when I was caddying for you. <laughs> So you um from there obviously you you started caddying in Australia and, and you got the Greg Norman job pretty quickly after I knew just mainly in Australia at that time. How did how did that work out? How did that come about? Yeah, well, um, I was caddying for Ian Baker Finch in, in one of the tournaments in Australia and he was paired with Greg Norman and um, Greg obviously was watching what I was doing and and he basically just set me up for tournament. That is, you know, how would you like to caddy for me? Um, and the tournaments that start at the start of the year, as you know, we used to have the Vic Open, Australian Masters, um, and I can't remember. There's another tournament that played in the January February window, and that's that. That's how it started. I said, "Yeah, absolutely, love the you know, you know, I came for him for a number of years just in Australia, and 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 then that led to caring for him in tournaments. Um, in Europe and, and Asia and Japan, everywhere except America, where he had a caddy, and then it ultimately ended up caddying from in America as well. Yeah, so they obviously that they were great times caddying with an Australian icon and, and um, you know something someone who took a great interest in me and, and taught me everything about the game. And you know when you play as juniors as we did, you know you don't understand a lot about the game; you just play the game. But um, yeah, I mean, he was absolutely fantastic and he teached me everything about the game. It was really exciting game, though. And, I mean, obviously, he's a he's a big fish in the pond, too, so he probably uh, got associated with a lot of different people. There's probably a bigger job than you expected working for him than some of the other guys. Oh, yeah, no, there's no question about that. He had, you know, a huge following in, in Australia. You know, I was carrying in the, in the 80s here in Australia and... Um, I mean, he just about won every tournament I came from in Australia. I mean, he had a remarkable record at the Australian Open, the Australian Masters. Uh, he played in the Vic Open. He played in the South Australian Open, Queensland Open. He, he, one thing I always admired about Greg is he always came back to Australia every summer and played, you know, quite often played half a dozen tournaments. He played in the Australian PGA, and he had a remarkable record in all those tournaments. And, he, and, and as you know, he, he had a great following, and he was a huge drawcard for the tournaments. And, um, and, and that, you know... That was a catalyst to a lot of young players in Australia taking up the game. I mean, they, Greg was a, they idolised Greg for juniors yeah, in Australia. That was the reason I played. Yeah, I mean, he was. And it's it's great when you've got a player like that. Um, and obviously, you late, many years later, Tiger brought the same thing to, to juniors around the world. So, but you know, Greg was a huge influence on a lot of people uh, in Australia that you know went on to be top players. So I saw, uh, I've actually, I'll show you it because we're on Zoom, but we're not going to put it, the podcast on Zoom, but I've actually got a book by Steve Williams. I, I was one of the people that bought it for you, Steve. Um, and there's some pictures in it of you caddying for Sandy Lyle and Langer and like, I didn't even know that you caddied for people like that. Are they just one-offs or like when you're in yeah. Europe? No, they, they were all in New Zealand. Um, you know, we used to have two tournaments in New Zealand, here in New Zealand, Shell Open, um, that was a Titarangi. Uh, and that tournament, because um, it was sponsored by New Zealand, every year they brought out a couple of marquee players. Uh, and back in those days, this is you know this also way back in the start of the days in the um, late seventies, early eighties, when I'd be in New Zealand in the summertime. 
um, those players would never bring the Cas as far. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of money in the game then, and it was a long way for Cas to go. So I always um, got asked if I could, you know, carry those players when they would come out to New Zealand tournaments. So that was great to get just one-off experiences with guys like that. Uh, I always found Langer to be the most interesting, one of the most interesting blokes I've ever carried for. So, you know, you, he would always do his yard. Just as a caddy, you always do his. And you'd say, say you'd have 134 and he'd have 133. And, he'd, you know, he'd make you go and recheck that. Like, I mean, I used to think, you know, one metre, what's the difference here, Bernard? <laughs> he was so precise and to the point where, you know, when he, at the completion of the tournament, and he'd write you out a check. You know, most guys, or every guy I ever carried for, just rounded it off. But he, he wrote to the exact dollar. You know, it was, it was $485.76. That's what he'd write. <laughs> he was so precise. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's a great fella, obviously. Did you have to do uh, the 23 clubs in the bag during practice days? He's, a, he's one of those guys that always had extra clubs in there. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, even to this day, I mean, I don't know if it still tinkers with clubs, but it was just so fascinating that a guy could be that good. Uh, he was one end of the spectrum. And, and um, like, one thing I admired about Tiger, he, he never tinkered with his golf clubs during the season. He would start the season with a set of golf clubs and he would not tinker to the off-season. He would keep the same clubs and then all year... Bernard tinkered every day, every round, every... It was just remarkable how a guy could be that good, but continuously tinkering with his golf club. So that was... You know, I always thought that, you know, you, with anything you do, you just, you know, you get something and test it and use it. Um, but, yeah, he, he was successful with all his, with his little... Um, the landings that he used to do. Yeah, so you um, you mentioned that you ended up going to America with Greg... Um... You caddied for a number of years, obviously, for him in America full-time. What was, uh, you know, I've got a few memories of it because I used to get up at 4 a.m. and watch the Masters and watch him uh, hopefully bring the jacket home, which he could never, unfortunately, do. But what do you remember about caddying for him, let's say especially at Augusta, uh, the, you know, because he was the, the great white hope, really, for Australia? Yeah, look, I mean, there's no secret. He, he wanted to put that green jacket on more than anything. You know, he obviously won the Open Championship a couple of times and, you know, that was absolutely fantastic too. But he, he had a fascination with Augusta. His game suited the course absolutely. I mean, it was in the early days, it was considered a golf course that you needed to draw the ball. I don't know if that's sort of the same theory that applies there today, but players felt that you needed to draw the ball. He was a high hitter and he drew the golf ball. So he knew the course suited him, and, and he, um, there was a tournament he, he dearly wanted to win, probably to the point where he wanted to win it too badly, I think. Um, it just became an obsession with him. And of course, when he had that big um, lead and, and faltered, well, not faltered, but I mean, things just unraveled against Nick Fowler. I think the problem was he just, you know, it was in his grasp and he wanted it so bad. But um, yeah, he, uh, yeah, he had a couple of obviously heartbreak. Um, losses at Augusta but um, yeah so the, he just wanted to win it so badly it was unreal but you know I didn't when he had the the loss against Nick Feldo, um I wasn't catting him at the time and obviously I was catting Ray Floyd at the time and I watched that all unravel and it was pretty sad and, that, and it was interesting because he he, he rang me uh, after the tournament Um and asked me would I come down to Florida with him. So I actually spent that night with him uh, once he finished his media duties. I flew on his plane down to his home in Florida and we sat on the beach and talked about it. 
Um, he was just absolutely heartbroken. And, you know, I knew it was going to be a tough recovery from there because he, he, you know, he should have won that. And he, he knows he made numerous mistakes in the course. But, um, yeah, I mean, he just had an obsession with the tournament. And um, I was so... That when I came for Adam Scott and Adam, you know, obviously became the first Australian to put on the green jacket. When I drove, when I left the golf course and I was driving back to the home that Adam had rented and I was staying with him, um, the first phone call, like the phone had been ringing as soon as we finished, but the first phone call I actually answered was Greg. Um, you know, and, and he, he, he was, it was a really conversation I'll never forget and something I just admired him for, you know, like he, he knew how badly he wanted it and he was trying to, he wanted me to help him win that tournament as much as he could. And then, you know, then Adam Scott, just like yourself, he just admired Greg, he idolised Greg and, you know, and so forth. And then he he became the first Australian to put that green jacket on. Yeah. So, you know, getting back to the shark a little bit here, do you think he was a better player? Not Not every week, but in those big intense moments, he was a better player when he had to chase a little bit because he could be his, would you say, he, obviously he's an aggressive player. He, he didn't play maybe as well protecting. He was a better chaser. Absolutely. No, no, no that would be a perfect synopsis of how he played when he was coming from behind. Um, when he got to the lead, he, he, he always played. He didn't have that conservative, conservative arm in his bag, but you know, like that's, that, that's one of the reasons why he won so many times. He just plays so uh, aggressive all the time. I mean, there is a point, as you know, when you get to a certain point that you know, you know, it'd be unlikely that someone can catch it. But that's just that, that's not the way he played. But um, yeah, his his big undoing or his biggest fault that he had as a golf professional um, is when something went drastically wrong, a double bogey and out of bounds, or something didn't go his way. Um, and he would get he could get very upset on the golf course. It might last a hole, it might last nine holes, eighteen holes, seventy-two holes, two weeks, four weeks. I mean, he things could linger terribly when something didn't go right. Um, if he didn't have that trait, uh, if he could have been able to, you know, look, you look at someone like a John McEnroe, he'd have a tantrum and then come back and let the bit, you know, play a, a set as good as you could play. But when Greg would have one of his you know, temperamental moments. It could take him a little bit to recover. Um, but everyone's got their strength. Everyone's got their weaknesses. His, his strength, but he was an aggressive player and then he played aggressive. And hence, he had a, you know, compiled an incredible record. Yeah, and then putting the shoe on the other foot, Tiger, whenever he had the lead, he would basically, it was, everyone knew it was almost over when he very rarely lost when in front. So how did his mindset play out you know obviously you got the best seat in the house understand and seeing what they're going through but was he conservative aggressive bit of both or whatever suited the moment yeah absolutely whatever suited the moment but he, he when he was ahead by five he wanted to get hit by six when he got ahead by six he you know, he, he he was never ever he, he always wanted to win a tournament by as great a margin as he could um, but he didn't do that by playing aggressively. He did that by playing smartly. When he had a lead, he, he would always eliminate the trouble. Um, you know, he was very, you know, obviously he had incredible ability to be able to do that. But he, he you know, as you know, he had that go-to shot, that stinger uh, with every club in the bag. And when he got ahead, you know, he played conservatively, what, what I would call conservatively, aggressively, um, combining the two. Uh, and um, so you... Obviously, we've already talked shark and 
Tiger. Ray Floyd's a pretty good player too. <laughs> he spent a number of years with him. Uh, you know, he he was a similar dude too when he got in the front and he was also hard to catch. Had the the steely eyes and the, you know, you could really see it in that he did not want to lose and I've got this thing. So um, obviously he was probably a little bit older when you caddied for him, you know, he's maybe in his forties, but he still competed there at Augusta losing the playoff one year and having a couple of really good finishes. That would have been interesting perspective for you because it was an older person, you know, probably past his prime, but still played unreal golf. Yeah. Look, um, I, I went to Kay or him. He was a fantastic named, you know, player. And I took it, you know, after I went, was caring for Greg, I went and caddied for, for Raymond Floyd, and you know he was obviously in, in in his late forties and winding down his career, but he was still a remarkably consistent player. And then he had a real surge there for a couple of years, where you know in his uh, you know between forty eight and like fifty two, where he played really really well, and both on the tour, PJ tour, and then of course he went to the Champions Tour and played a number of tournaments there. But he never actually in the time that I was caring for never focused solely on the Champions Tour because he was still very competitive on the main tour. Um, and, and in that period where I came from, he was run up at Augusta twice. And if you ever have one moment in your career, Brad, that you could take back, uh, it would be at Augusta caring for him. And I still think about it to this day. It was the only moment in 40 years of caring when something came into my head. And when something came into my head, it just didn't pop and it's something I thought about and I didn't say it to him. So we were on the 17th hole there, need to finish 4-4 uh, to win the Masters. And he drove absolutely down the middle of the fairway on 17. It was the old green, not the new one. It had, you know, they had that lower tier on the right and the higher tier on the left and, and quite a bit. And the pin was on the front right-hand side over that bunker. Drove the middle of the fairway and... He said to me, I'm just going to hit a, a, a little fade off the hill on the left, you know, that slope on the green. I'm just going to work it off that slope. And the first thing that came to my head, he said, well, what if you aim there and you pull it and you leave it on top of the slope? Now you've got that, one of the fastest putts and, of course, can't keep it on the green. You've got to aim at the flag here. And if you miss it to the right, he's the best chipper of the ball that I've ever seen. You know, notoriously chipped in more than anybody at the time. You know, just aim it dead at the flag. And if you pull it, you're all right. And if you push it, you're all right. You know, da, 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 da. I didn't say it. I just, I didn't say it. And of course, he aimed at that hill on the left and he tugged it a little bit, hit it left, and then pulled it off the green. You couldn't keep it on the green. And um, three putters. <laughs> and, and to this day, I just, I, I don't know why I didn't say that. But yeah, and it's frustrated me all these years. And every time I see Raymond at Augusta when I used to go back to Caddy, and we'd always talk about it, and, you know. He says, yeah, why didn't you say that? I'd have another green jacket in the closet. Because you, <laughs> so you, you would say that for the most part, you probably did speak your mind a lot, didn't you? Like if you saw something that wasn't right or, or you know, a plan or, or something, you, you were forthgoing in making your comments known. But for some yeah, reason, oh, you didn't. Yeah, absolutely. That's the, look, honestly, I can say, Brad, that's the only time in ever canning that, that I didn't say that what, what came into my head, you know, I stayed quiet. <laughs> I'm never tight-lipped, and I was right there and then. And if I had said what I was thinking, um, which was the right thing to say, I mean, he just didn't quite choose the right option. And if I had said what he, what I thought, uh, he probably would have won a go. He was playing great that day, which is a nice nine-iron flag, two-putter to one-putter, and won the tournament. So um, I still think about that. <laughs> Well, you redeemed yourself with obviously one uh, 
six masters, five with Tiger and or four with Tiger, no, three with Tiger and one with uh, Adam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So fortunately got it, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, I, I think Augusta's just the, um, the greatest test between a player and a caddy, and you probably can understand this, um, because every shot has to be so exact there. You know, there's a lot of places, you know, you can get away with hitting with the wrong club here and there, you know, going over the green, short of the green, that. But as you know, there, you've just got to be so precise and get the ball into those right quadrants on the green. So it is one of the most stressful tests. You know, you, you can't wait to get to Augusta, but then you can't wait to leave on Sunday night. It's just 72 holes of stress. And, but that's what makes it a great challenge. You know, the, a player that wins that tournament is going to have a great caddy on the back because it takes so much precision and hard work to get every shot right. Uh, throughout the week there. I mean, you know, you just look at some of the holes there, like the sixth hole, for example, the par three, not a, not a hole you see a lot on TV. But, you know, as you know, Brad, if, if you hit it long left or right, you know, you've just got to hit the right club there. Yeah. And when that pins up on the right-hand side there and you don't get it up in that tear on the right there, you know, you've got to make more fours than you are three. So it's just a great test of a caddy on player there. I just love going in, but also love leaving as well. <laughs> I was just thinking, actually, talking about that. Uh, I got a picture on my wall in my other room here at Augusta, the one year I played it. And funnily enough, I'm walking down the 15th fairway and I'm flanked by Ray Floyd and Greg Norman. I got to play with them in the in the practice round there. So that was pretty cool highlight. I'm, and you were there. <laughs> yeah, no, you enjoyed your time there. Uh, you were stoking it all up. I remember your mum and dad there <laughs> taking it all up. <laughs> I mean, when you haven't been there before, you know, you're fortunate that you've been there and you, and you still have access to go to being a golf coach. But it's one of those places, you know, you feel as being a part of the PGA Tour, it's a place that you just feel so lucky to go and participate, caddy in or coach and whatever. It's just, it's, it's such a unique place. Isn't it? And, um, you know, hence that's why it's, as far as patrons go, it's on everyone's bucket list to go there. And, you know, no one that goes there is ever disappointed. They just completely amazed it's just an amazing place to, as you would attest to yeah i always say it's like the disneyland for golfers it's a pretty cool spot so you know all those guys we've mentioned tiger greg norman ray floyd they're all big personalities aren't they so i'm sure there were times when you've got screaming yelling people in the background all the stuff you know they're highlight spotlight players how did that affect you and your job because obviously you've got numbers to do you've got all this other stuff but you're also like a, a marshal yourself aren't you I'm sure that you had to really protect your play a lot of people don't understand that yeah that, that was always something that um, is an interesting aspect when you carry for a player that's always in the spotlight no, particularly with you know Greg when he was playing in Australia and obviously Tiger throughout the whole time caring for Tiger you know it's just a circus really but you know, you, you've got to try and, you know, not only are you trying to protect the player and give, you know, every opportunity for him to play the round as peacefully as can, but you've got to be able to respect the other players in the group and give them the opportunity. You know, it's well documented that everyone that played with the Tiger for a number of years there was, was struggled um, playing with them. You know, there's so many extra people inside the ropes and so much movement, so much cameras and, you know, and, and so forth. So, you know, like I said, not only are you trying to, protect the player you came for, but you're trying to give those guys that are playing with them a, a fair opportunity as well. And, you know, it, it certainly was a, a tough part of the job there. 
Um, but you know, like, and, and, and a lot of times people would, you know, have some negative things to say about the way I carried that out. But I always said to them, you come and follow me for a week and just be everywhere I go for a week chatting for this bloke and just watch what goes on and then make an assessment from there. You know, just don't make an assessment on one five-minute incident or 30-second thing. But um, it was very obviously a challenging thing. But, you know, a guy has to be able to play, whether it be Tiger, who's number one in the world, or someone else. They've all got to play in the same conditions. Everything should be the same for those players, theoretically. And you've got to try and make that scene so they can perform the best they can with the least amount of distractions. I mean, there's always going to be more people inside the ropes than that. But if they keep their distance and everything, everything should be the same. You should be able to walk down the fairway, talk to your playing partners and your caddy, not have a boom mic there and, and so forth. So, yeah, that was kind of the way I looked at it. Yeah, I got to play with Tiger once in 2005 at uh, Boston, Deutsche Bank, and... Um, I kind of liked it because there were so many people there that it was almost hard to miss the fairway or hit it too far off <laughs> the fairway there. <laughs> and I, I remember you and I standing there on one of the tees. I think it was the fourth tee was, and we were having a little bit of a wait there and we were just chatting together and Tiger sort of overheard us talking. I think it was 2005. So I, he goes, well, you guys have known each other for 30 years? I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we sort of told him a little bit of the story, the background, and then, uh, and I, I remember this vividly that you, you sort of chimed in and, or he said something like, are you, you actually that good, Steve? And he goes, yeah, he goes, I could play better in from here than you can. You should caddy for me the last 14. <laughs> we always had one little, um, one little competition with Tiger. Is, um, I had a bit of a knack of being able to spin the ball and we, we'd find a bit of wood like a, you know, you'd be at a golf course where you cross over a bridge and that that's close to a green and that and we'd spin one off the bridge sort of thing. I had a bit of a knack of doing that. Like even at the 17th the sawgrass as you walk across that um, astro turf across the water to get to the green and that I could spin the ball pretty good. So we had we had some great competitions. <laughs> but uh oh yeah, that was uh you know, those sort of days. Um I remember precisely playing with you at Boston and then um there was another player um, who was from Parapatamu Beach, Paul Davenport, who you would have known. You would have played with him um, in your time in Australia. Paul got to play with Ray Floyd and I caddied for him. So that, that was another spe- sort of special day. A couple of guys that, you know, that you muck around with juniors with, you, yourself and myself. And next, you know, you, it's a great thing to look back on. You know, you go from Rossdale Golf Course to here we are, on the PGA Tour, side by side, you know, one's playing, one's catting, and both flying the trade. And I did the same with Paul Davenport, and they, and they were really memorable moments. And, you know, Tiger took an interest because, of, you know, you, yourself and myself knew each other, and then Ray took a great interest because Paul and I knew each other. So those were, you know, fantastic moments. You know, you, you wouldn't think that two young boys from Rossdale Golf Club would be standing at the, on the, you know, the height of the PGA Tour competing That's you know, right. many years later. Yeah, I mean, we aspired to, but not. Uh, you, some dreams just don't always happen, do they? No, exactly. We all want to become better. Now you have the opportunity to learn all about the training drills I use with my amateur players, beginners, and my PGA Tour players that I work with. My second ebook, The 430 Path to Great Golf, is now available. Take an in depth look at the technique and drills 
that have helped hundreds of golfers the world over. Train your swing to be more powerful, more consistent, and more like you envision your swing to be. The 430 Path to Great Golf, only available in the store at bradleyhughesgolfforum.com and bradleyhughesgolf-members.com. Bradley Hughes Golf, it's where experience counts. Now let's get back to the interview. So, um, you know, I wanted to ask you, because I, I have heard the story about Tory Pines there on the 18th hole and Tiger had to basically birdie the last to tie Rocco Mediate and he's on, playing on half a leg and, you know, everything, nothing was in his favour. And I, I always wondered this because apparently you gave him a little bit of a mystery yardage for a specific reason, which you can delve into. But based on that, did Tiger not do his yardages per se or, or he trusted you or, or was it he was just in the moment, didn't notice that it was a different yardage or, or fill us in? No, Tiger, Tiger never did yardages when I was carrying him. He just 100% relied on you. And this is something I developed over the years with him um, that I would adjust the yardages frequently so that he would hit the, so that, you know, he, I, I knew which club he was going to hit. And, and, and if it was a yardage, if the yardage was accurate, and I, then I thought, well, he'll hit this club. Well, I just changed it so I knew at this club because I knew that was the right club. I did it frequently. In fact, one year at Bay Hill, one of the years there when they redid the greens on the Sunday, for every shot that he hit on the Sunday, approach shot to the green, I gave him the wrong yardage. Well, not the wrong, but I adjusted the yardage. <laughs> and he won the tournament easily. But the one at Tory Pines, so you come to the last hole, he absolutely needs a four to tie Rocco Mediate. And he hits over, hits poor tee shot, poor layup shot out of the bunker into the right-hand rough there. And I know that well, if I give him the yardage, he's going to hit his 56-degree club because that's exactly what the yardage requires. So I've got to make him hit a 60 because it's the only club. I just had, as soon as I saw the lie, I knew the ball was going to come out quicker than he thought it was going to come out. It was He did it under the shade of the tree and the dew was still on the ground of the tree because the sun had never got over that tree, that hotel's in the background and so forth. Anyway, so I just adjusted the yardage and, and it was a long debate because I think he could actually sense, you know, he, he, he knew that I did it, but he, he, I'd never tell him. And I, I think he could sense that, you know, say it was a hundred and, I think it was 100 and something, and I adjusted it back to 90-something. It was quite a big difference this time. But I just knew that, you know, you, you get a feeling. And for all the times I carried the Tiger, I think I only ever come up unstuck once. I mean, I just had a great feeling, particularly when he got the adrenaline going. And as you know, you get the adrenaline going, you don't know it yourself. And you start hitting the ball, you can see it's going further and further. So I just used to adjust the yard. It became something I got very confident in doing and, 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 and had no problem doing it. But yeah, that was one case here. And of course, he, you know, he had to keep that. Uh, it was a hard shot to even get it close to the pin there from where he was. And yeah, of course, he hit it on the green there. And it was remarkable. You, when you stand there, you know he's going to make that putt. There's just no doubt in your mind. I mean, this guy was just a freak. But when you watch that putt in slow motion on TV, <laughs> it was like a, like a pinball machine. Bing, 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 and then actually hit the, hit the thing at the end of the pinball. So, and it still uh, tried to mess, but wouldn't. <laughs> so i got an here's an easy one for you this is uh well maybe not easy there's a couple of instances but we know we know we're talking to you so we know it's uh, probably involving you 
best chip in followed by the worst high five. <laughs> yeah, well done, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you got the highlight first, then the low light second. I like that. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, it's interesting, Brad. You stand on the 16th tee there, and, you know, you're playing with Chris DeMarco, a, a, a guy that you would think that Tiger could take down. And it's amazing what can go through your head in the short period of time when a golf ball's in the air. So you're standing on the 16th tee and Tiger hits it and it's going left. And my first thought is that it's in the bunker. My second thought, it's in the water. And then I can see it's not on either of those. This is even long and left of that. Um, and then I'm thinking, I don't even know what's over there. I've never been over there. And of course, as soon as that, well, where, where's that Steve? Where's that Steve? And I said, I, I actually don't know exactly where that is. I've not been over there. <laughs> I mean, it was in a position I'd never seen anyone before. Um, you know, particularly on a Sunday when, you know, you're aiming that, you know how far left that is when you're aiming that far right of the flag. Yeah, to feed it off the hill. Correct. So it was just remarkable. He, you know, he, he had a good close look at that shot as you, as you do. And he said to me, Stevie, that's what he, he always called me Stevie with a not, you know, Stevie IE like Stevie Nicks. Um, he pointed out a ball mark on the green and he said, do you think if I land that ball in that ball mark, it'll get, you know, far enough up that hill and then come to the, from his right, left to right, back down to the pin. You know, he was just trying to keep that ball on the green. Um, you know what it's like there. He, 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 he thought that if he hit it too hard, it would go up the hill and it would run back past the pin on that little area of fringe between the flag and the bunker. And amazingly, Brad, he landed that ball exactly on that pitch mark. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, I mean, it was just amazing. You know, if you stand from that distance and pick out a ball mark, I mean, you could stand there for the rest of the day and hit, hit a bucket load of chips and not be able to actually physically land it. I mean, I mean that was a point that he picked out. He thought that it would land there, roll this far up the hill and roll back. I mean, yeah. And, you know, it was obviously an incredible moment. More so that the fact that, you know, I was, okay, the ball went in, but I was just so amazed that he'd actually picked out a spot and landed it right on there. It was just <laughs> incredible. And that was, and then, yeah, that was followed by the worst high five ever. That didn't even connect. <laughs> Although, so you know, Paul Azinger at the Ryder Cup, I don't know if you remember that one. That was pretty, that was pretty bad too. I think he's beat yours, but yours was a more uh, doable shot or, or better moment. I bet the crowd would have been insane. Like the roars at Augusta are just ridiculous. That, that would have just brought the house down. Yeah, oh, yeah, I mean, it was just deafening. I mean, you know, and of course, you've still got two holes to play. and um, But that, you know, was a big momentum swinger there. Chris DeMarco, obviously, was thinking, you know, the same thing I was thinking on the tee, like, this is in the water, this is in the bunker, this is not good. You know, I mean, you know, you're thinking instead of losing a shot, you're, you're gaining a shot here. And um, a big, big momentum swing there. So, obviously, um, you know, we all... No Tigers documented injuries. How did he play through some of that? I mean, obviously, you must have known there was times like he's in trouble or he's not going to do any good, but he still somehow did it. Was that just guts, determination, technique, will, just, you know, he, he obviously had it all. What, what did you see? You know, obviously, Tory Pines come to mind because that was – Amazing on like a half broken leg, but um, you know, he obviously played through a lot of injuries, some of them we probably don't even know about. Yeah, I mean, 
certainly Tiger has immense, um, you know, courage, if you like, and the way he can play through pain. I mean, he was frequently injured, Tiger. Um, you know, I think if he looked back over his career, he mightn't have been so aggressive in, in the training that he did, uh, and the gym work and so forth. He was, he, he loved to train, he loved to work out, and um, it didn't hinder his golf, but I think it hindered his health. And, and, and obviously, in his later part of his career, um, it certainly stalled his career. I think if he, you know, perhaps hadn't been such a frequent gym user, he might have been still. His, his physical condition might have allowed him to play at a higher level for longer. Um, you know, his body certainly broke down there towards the end, but he, he had a, his tolerance for pain was probably, you know, he had this great ability to, to block things out, including pain. You know, I mean, just, that was the way he was. He, he frequently played, you know, where he wasn't 100%, but, um, he, you know, his ability to be able to, picture a swing in his head and make that swing regardless of his physical condition. Um, he, you know, that, that was one of his absolute strengths. So he, 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 he could rely or, you know, remember swings that he'd made at certain points and he knew, and he just could make that swing. I mean, it was yeah, just the connection between the brain and, and the, you know, to picture something and be able to do it regardless of his physical, physical ability was remarkable. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, obviously, I'm on the other side of things now. I'm a coach now. Um, what do you think about all the different swings? Or I mean, you're sort of saying that he's overworked his body maybe, but what about all the different swing changes he went through? Do you think anything may have catalysted that or he just he liked the challenge of just doing something different Why he did all that? And like, you know, everyone would say 2000 was his best swing. Some will say 05 with his best golf, all these different things. What, um, in your opinion, as a swing-wise, what is there any uh, deficiencies that maybe happened or he just overworked or he could make anything work? Yeah, look, I, I, I think he, 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 he had this theory that you could own your swing instead of renting it. He believed that at some point you could find a swing that would repeat itself every day, every shot, all the time, regardless of the circumstance and regardless how you're feeling. He, you know, so he, he felt that you're only renting your swing. And he, he, he was instrumental in believing that at some point along the line, you're going to find a way to swing in the club where nothing changes. Every day it's the same. And that was what drove him. I mean, he, he, he was as... I mean, he was obviously very interested in winning tournaments, but he was he was so determined to find a way, and, and that's why he experimented. And he had no problem changing. He, he loved the idea of rebuilding the swing because he he, he was just wanted to know at the end result: am I owning it or am I renting it? And that was the thing. He believed he could own a swing, and at some point, that you would find a way that you would swing the golf club, and you would require less practice that way because you, you you've got a way. Or, or a system somehow that's going to allow you to swing the club the same every day. And as you know, every day you get up, you know, you feel different, you, you know, your mood's different, you feel different, you're walking different, just every, every day you're different. But he believed at some point in time, and that's why he had absolutely no problem um, changing his swing. And, and, and look, everyone's going to argue, when did he play with better, you know, was it better with Hank Haney, was it better with Port Charm and that, you know, and the, the, 
you know, he, he had tremendous success with both of them. So, you know, that, that, that's an argument that no one will ever win. But um, I didn't think when he went to Sean Foley, and this is nothing against Sean Foley, he's a fantastic coach, but I didn't think what Sean's theory was was going to be great for Tiger because it sort of went against something that he did. You know, he had a massive hip slide, Tiger. That's how he create, you know, that twist of his hips, that's how he created so much speed, so much length, and his ability to get the ball out of the rough. Um, it's, you know, I think the most underrated thing about Tiger Woods is his ability to get the ball out of the rough, either onto the green or near the green from places where no one else could. I mean, that was the most underrated thing about Tiger Woods. I mean, you can flash back in your mind, you'll, everyone remembers that shot at Pebble Beach um, on the fifth hole. That Pebble Beach there, the par five. Everyone, you know, remembers that hole. Six hole, sorry. Um, you know, no player that played the game at that particular point would ever even contemplate a shot like that. Out of yeah, I wouldn't get it halfway up the hill trying to hit it out of that grass. No, or some players wouldn't even get, wouldn't even get it to the water. But his, <laughs> uh, that, that's the most underrated part of Tiger Woods' game is his ability to hit the ball out of the rough. And I didn't think when Sean took over as Tiger's coach that his method would be conducive to what Tiger's natural body movement would be. But you know, that was only my thought at the time. That, But um, like I said, he, 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 he loved to tinker with the swing because he believed one day he could own the swing. Now, it was probably a fantasy, really, but um, he knew that you were going to have to, when you change your swing, you're going to work hard. And, of course, he loved working hard. He loved practicing. He loved grinding on that range, hitting balls. So, you know, that was just the way it was. I think that's, you know, Tiger's a complex character. And that was just something to always completely engage him in the game, you know, outside of, you know, all the hoo-ha that went around being Tiger Woods, that he was always working on something. I mean, it was just amazing that a guy that was that good was continuously, even when he was playing with, uh, under Butcher's guidance and under Hank's guidance, he was always working on something. I mean, it was amazing for a guy that's that good. Where some, some players... You know, like, say, Bernard Langer, just for example. I mean, he hasn't changed his swing, hasn't changed what he's done for 40 years, 50 years. I mean, he just keeps playing the same old way he's played. But, um, he just changes clubs every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, okay, that might be his thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, fascinating. So, um, actually, I, that, when you're talking about out of the rough, there's another guy that did pretty good and was regarded as the best player out of the rough, Jack Nicholas. So, obviously, it's a talent to be able to do it. All right, so you've seen everyone, obviously, and up close. If you could complete the perfect golfer through your eyes, let's name just a couple of categories. Driver, best driver you ever saw. Greg Norman. Yeah, I give you a tick for that one. Uh, Long irons. Sandy Lyle. Sandy was a beast. I remember playing with him in Torrey Pines one year, maybe the 14th hole. It's pretty windy, and we had the same yardage, had like 160 yards, and it was into the wind. I hit a six iron under the wind into that little island floaty green out there, the 14th. Yeah. And he hit a nine iron from the same spot. <laughs> and I looked at him. I said, holy cow, that went high. I said, you just hit that over the wind. Like, I tried to hit it under it, and I think he hit it over it. He, I can understand where, you, where you're going with that answer. Uh, mid-irons. Uh, Adam Scott. 
Scotty, yeah. And in what regard? Like you just flushed them, uh, distance control, ac- accuracy, distance everything. control, and ball flight ability to have low flight, high flight uh, from those mid irons. You know, like when you go to the short irons, obviously you have a high flight and the long irons, low flight. But his ability to flight the ball, you know, for the five, six, seven iron was fantastic to keep the the flight required for the shot. All right, and what about wedge play or, or around the greens? We'll classify that as short game. Ray Floyd, unquestionably. Yeah. Yeah. And putting. Well, I think, you know, there's a great answer to that, or not a great answer, but, you know, I think the best putter that I've ever seen from Thursday to Saturday was Brad Faxon. And then on Sunday, the greatest putter was Tiger Woods. I mean, he made more putts on Sunday than anybody. And if Brad Faxon could have putted on Sunday as he did Thursday, Friday, Saturday, <laughs> who knows what kind of record he would have compelled. I've never seen a guy putt better on Thursday to Saturday than Brad, but um, yeah. Yeah, he's still regarded putting. He's a bit of a putting guru now. I've spoken to him a few times that he's been sought after with the helping some of the players. So here's a, not really a trick question, but you caddied a lot in Ryder Cup, President Cup, but you're on the other team. How did that feel like caddying for Tiger against the, you know, obviously sort of growing up in Australia, Europe is your your ally, not really the Americans. And then, of course, the President's Cups, the Aussies and the Kiwis and all that. How did, what did you feel? Was that bittersweet or it didn't matter? You are just doing your job. Yeah, no, that's a very good question, Brad. I actually, to be honest with you, I always joked you know, with Ray Floyd and, and with Tiger, that look, you know, if you, if you, if you want to take an American cap in the week, you're absolutely more welcome to because my my allegiance here is with the European side. Um, you know, I always actually felt a little bit awkward, to be honest. Um, you know, particularly, you know, I was always the only non-American on the team. So these 12 players and 12 caddies and there's 11 American caddies and 12 American players and myself. So, you know, I actually did find that a little bit, you know, kind of strange in a sense because, you know, before I got into the caddy thing, and you know, the Ryder Cup was a huge presence, right? You know, when you're a junior golfer and you're watching, and of course, I was always wanting the Europeans to win because, you know, some of the players there are part of the Commonwealth, just like New Zealand and Australia were Commonwealth countries. But, you know, I always found that, um, yeah, the, you know, the, the, the Ryder Cup is just so intense, and once you get into it, you know, then... Nobody that I've ever cared for wanted to lose, you know, to win as much and hated to lose like Tiger did. So once you got out there, I mean, you just, you know, you, you're standing on eggshells because, I mean, he just hated to lose. <laughs> you know, so as soon as you got out there, you're... But, you know, the, the Americans and a lot of their way they, they do things are probably a little bit different to how we do things in Australia, New Zealand and that. And so it always was a little bit strange. You know, you go to that what became known as the Battle of Brookline. You know, I stood back and just, you know, pure amazement, or well, not amazement, but just, I just disbelief, I guess, what was what happened there. I mean, that's just not something that's not in our nature to do something like that, particularly when the match hadn't finished. So that, that, you know, that was something I just was amazed by, you know, I stood back in disbelief. Yeah, and... Um... What about the President's Cup? I guess you caddied. Did you caddy for Adam in that couple of times too? Yeah, yeah. It's just a shame the President's Cup just never really got rolling. I mean, it's just been so one-sided. It's just so unfortunate. Um, the depth of the American team, like, the, you know, the, the international team has, 
you know, the strength at the top of the team. They just don't have the depth uh, at, at that 12-man roster to compete against the 12 American players. And it's just a shame. It's a, it's a great concept, the President's Cup, um, for the players that don't get to play in the Ryder Cup. They have an opportunity to, the players from the rest of the world can form a team and play the Americans. It's just a real shame that it just hasn't, you know, there hasn't been a, a contest. The international teams won it once and tied once and lost 10 times. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, it's a little bit like the Ryder Cup was in, in, in a very formative years right. and that, that the Americans dominated it. So Americans have completely dominated that. And, you know, the, the last playing of it in Australia, of course, you would have had a great interest in watching that. And, you know, they had a great chance to win it. And, and you know, the 10, the 12 singles matches, that you know, the strongest team generally is always going to come on the top. And, and that's what played out that, that particular day. So, but yeah, it would be great if the international team could win that a couple of times and, and really get the momentum going and, and create a lot more interest in the event. Yeah, because that's what happened with the Ryder Cup, exactly like you said. No one really cared until Europe started winning it all the time. Yeah, exactly. So what about Tiger's record when he plays in the... For a Ryder Cup and that, you know how they say he doesn't have as great a record. Is it is it different? Is he more? You know, I don't think he's just an individual. I think he loves the team stuff. But pot luck that some of his matches didn't work out when he, with his pairings, or is he a different player? You think in that situation having a, a partner? Yeah, that's a, you know that's a great point, Brad. But look, I, I can also say in the times that I played, well, not played, but I carried the Tiger in the Ryder Cup. He, he, a lot of the players struggled to play with him and, and played to their ability. I think that it was a case of I don't want to let Tiger down and and the pressure of, of partnering with him, I'd be the four ball or the best ball, um, foursomes. I think they just, they felt the pressure. I, I know some of the players that played with him just didn't play anywhere near to their ability on the day that they played with him. And hence he compiled a pretty, pretty poor record in four ball and, and foursome matches. Yeah, and, they, and I'm sure that in, he inspires the other team as well, doesn't he? So you got to, you know, one slacking off and two guys firing. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so about to wrap it up. What's your favourite memory? Like, doesn't have to be golf, doesn't have to be anything. What's your best memory for Steve Williams' life today? Um, my wife and I got into having a charity, a foundation, and we got involved with the Starship Hospital here, and we were the founding donors to commence the rebuild of the oncology unit at the Starship Children's Hospital. So um, my wife and I gave a million dollars to that to get the rebuild underway. And when that project was completed, um, they named that ward after my wife and I. That would be my greatest memory of anything. Yeah, that's um, And that's in, so, in near home in New Zealand? Yeah, so when we go into that ward there, um, and see our name above the when you enter, enter the ward, the children's oncology unit at the Starship Hospital. So that was a huge project that we got involved with, and that's the most memorable thing um, that we've both done. And, and we still spend a lot of time going to the Starship Hospital, and it's uh, it's a great memory. Nice. I thought you were going to say when I caddied for you it was going to be one of your best memories. 
I think I think that, I think well, that's I, much I, I don't know if I, I don't know I don't know if I paid you when, <laughs> when we won at Rosebud, won that trainee tournament, that thirty-six all won at Rosebud. I don't know if I paid you ten percent of the fifty dollars I won. I think I so get a, five dollars. I get a free pie every now and then out of the shop. <laughs> all right. So last topic. Obviously, you're, you're a motorhead. You've always loved your cars. I mean, you're still driving, or you have a team, or, or what's happening with that? Yeah, yeah. So I'm still racing Speedway. Um, still mad as snake doing that. But um, yeah, so I, I run two sorts of cars here. And I, sort of, you know, I still have my own team in that. But I'm actually going to fold that up after next year. Um, it's just I'm closing on 60 years of age. And it's, you know, it, it, every year it gets tougher and tougher uh, when you're racing against the young guys. And a lot, a lot of the guys are, you know, the, the same age as my son I'm racing against, sort of thing. And, um, but yeah, no, I've, I've had a pretty decent season so far and um, still enjoy it. But it's getting to, you know, the body probably gets a bit of a hammering when you're racing all the time there. But no, I still absolutely, that's my other passion. It's always been uh, something I'm highly. You know, I love motorsport now, and then we'll obviously continue to follow it. I, I sponsor a number of young kids in Speedway, so that's a great interest. I get actually get as much fun watching them race as I do race myself. But I love the Speedway, and yeah. But I'm going uh, I'm going to race up the end of this season here, and then next season, oh, that's going to be my last season. Yeah, you get a couple more uh, flags or trophies for that room. Yeah, yeah, you know, I still get the flags. Yeah, still. Yeah, still get a couple of wins here and there on the on the motor side, motorsport side of it. All right, mate. Well, it's good to catch up. Known you forever. Haven't spoken that much recently, but thanks for doing this for me. It's good yeah, absolutely. Down and, land for both. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. And uh, you know, I, 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 as I said to you, Brad, I, I read that article uh, recently that was published online. I saw the article and. I didn't realise the stable of players that you put together. And I know you've got a select group there, a small group, and that's a great way to go. And I wish you all the best and all your players. You've obviously got uh, a very talented player in Brendan Todd that someone, um, I believe, is going to win a major championship. So that'll be a great moment for both yourself and him when that, when that occurs. And I know it will. So you've got a, that's a, a moment to look forward to. All right, mate. I hope so. I hope you're a good uh, foreseer of the future. Not like we were oh, when we were young. We didn't foresee where we were going to be, but <laughs> we've had a good yeah, journey. All the best, Brad. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, mate. Cheers, bye. Well, that's it for another episode of Bradley Hughes Golf Podcast. For more information about my golf instruction, check out my website, bradleyhughesgolf.com. If you like to watch golf videos to make you a better player, sign up for my members-only site, Bradley Hughes Golf hyphen members.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.